because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Hey everyone, welcome to Cows in the Field. This is yet another movie podcast trying to channel the spirit of Werner Herzog. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we're talking about the 1985 Japanese foodie film, Tampopo. And we're excited to be joined by a newly tenured professor of philosophy at the University of San Diego, an author of On Being Awesome, A Unified Theory of How Not to Suck, <laughs> and the forthcoming Your Wild and Precious Life about YOLO culture, maybe? It's Nick Riggle, yay! <laughs> hey, hey. Yeah, sort of about YOLO culture. There's a, there's, there are some comments about YOLO, YOLO culture, but the book is really about... Um, uh, it's actually about a, a kind of, in some ways, strange philosophical question, but one that I really like, which is, um, so we're just sort of given our lives, like we just we just end up alive, right? It's like all of a sudden, hey, I'm I'm like a thing, I'm alive, I'm conscious. Um, and usually, when you're just given something, um, it's not clear that you should value it, right? Mm -hmm. Someone like leaves beer in your fridge or something, you know, after a party, just kind of sits in the fridge, and you're like, oh, I might drink it, I might not, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't really matter. And so there's a question about like, why should you value this thing you're just kind of given? Um, and part of that depends on whether it's even valuable um, and what that might, how you, how you might answer that question um, when it comes to um, this existence that's, you know, not entirely uh, pleasant all the time. Not free of fraught. Yeah, this is a question we struggled with when we, when we thought about having kids. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Is this a valuable yeah. thing no, exactly. we're doing? Yeah. This guy doesn't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's cool. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kid, the, the kid stuff comes up too, for sure. Um, and then, so uh, one of the things I look at is like what I call these existential imperatives. Like you only live once, right? That kind of seem to like presume that life is valuable and that you should like take charge of it. Carpe diem, right? Mm -hmm. YOLO. Um, it's kind of like what's behind these things? They seem like they really inspire people and they justify action and they motivate action. Um, and they, we even use them as critiques, right? Like you don't live once enough, right? You're, you're too conservative or something. And that's the power of it. But like, why is that the power of it? That's strange. You know, what is it about life that makes you want to do the things that you only live once inspires? Because you might think, you know, I don't know, you're alive. So do everything you can to stay alive, which is like, <laughs> yeah shelter yourself like stay inside that's my um, that's I was how say, I, that's justin's yeah, that's mantra I <laughs> <laughs> i'm the yeah. ultimate yeah. maxi minner <laughs> there's a there's an snl skit called uh where they make fun of this and um it's it, they interpret yolo as you ought to look out Yeah, <laughs> that that one spoke to me. That yes. one really spoke. Yeah, to me. Yeah, Justin's like, that's uh -huh. what I've been saying yeah. this whole time. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something. I think there's something deep to that too, and uh, it's one of the kind of uh, points of the book is to uh, try to understand that if there if there if there's something wrong with that, like what could it possibly be, um, or something lacking in that, or and it's not clear that there's anything anything lacking in it. So. Mm. 
Well, today we're going to talk about Tampopo, and here, okay, so this is a movie that I suspect that our audience will be somewhat divided on in the sense that some of them will have seen it, but I think a good number of people may not have seen it. And um, it is currently now streaming on the Criterion channel. So uh, if anyone has that or wants to take out a seven-day trial, uh, we do recommend it. But let's all go around, do round robin here, and pitch the movie to someone who hasn't seen it. So how would we try to convince someone to watch Tampopo? How would you do it, Nick? Yeah. Um, first of all, also it's it's rentable on Apple TV um, or or purchasable too. Right. Very, very easily accessible. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, it's the best food. It's the best food movie ever made. I think that's. I'm very confident in that. Um, there's a lot of great food movies. This is the best one. Um, that would be my quickest pitch. I think so. If you like food and you like film, and so like, I, if you're human, um, this is a great, this is a great movie to watch. <laughs> I mean, it is such a, it is a wonderful movie. It's and it's such a um, positive and uh, affirmative movie. Um, so if you're just looking to have a good time, I think that'd be a good way to pitch it. Here's here's a joke pitch, but I, Laura and I were were going back and forth about whether we had the same pitch. So here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready to find out Uh-oh. if we had the same pitch? Uh, so there's a, uh, we all know the scene from In the Realm of the Senses where a woman oh. sticks an egg up her vagina. Yeah, everybody knows that this, scene. This movie mm-hmm. does not have that scene in it. So that's my pitch. <laughs> what was your pitch going to be, Laura? It was not that. I was not It's gonna... got a very close one, though. Yes, well, that's what it's reminded like the me. Second, the second <laughs> um no i mine was also kind of a joke pitch but not in that direction um it was more like being more specific about the the foodie nature of this um and maybe this would turn some people away i think that would be wrong though but my pitch is like do you like diners drive-ins and dives that's all right here right now on diners drive-ins and dives (laughs) if so i think you'd like to (laughs) do you want to see like a celebration of like casual eating like taking very seriously and lovingly you know like guy fieri's always like look at this burrito that you just ate for five bucks and didn't think about it that took six days to make you know <laughs> like and these people are really talented and hard working <laughs> like that's that i feel like and then we're just gonna celebrate that you know whereas a lot of the foodie movies are like the trip movies where you watch fancy people sit in fancy restaurants eating like a like a leaf floating on top of a foam <laughs> and it's not that <laughs> very much totally. not that yeah. yeah it's very much deliberately not that yeah. yeah there's something really deep for him for Tommy about about ramen I got the sense that this movie like has certain significance for you in particular Nick so like can you like elaborate on that like like what when would you, when did you first see it when did you kind of fall in love with the movie yeah I was trying to remember when I first saw it and it wasn't that long ago um and I think my friend Chelsea Coleman actually showed it to me the first time, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe six years ago or five years ago. Um, and I immediately fell in love with it and I use it, I use it in teaching and um, I've seen it many, many times since. And um, yeah, what what's so, there's so much I like about the film that it's hard to kind of put it in a nutshell, but one of the things that is wonderful about it is the way that it celebrates what you might think of as aesthetic life. So it celebrates the pursuit of aesthetic value in in a medium, in 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 food. But it does it in a way that you might not expect. And I think in a way that's 
deeply connected to what the filmmaker is trying to do with this film, which is that it's not, you know, as Laura said, it's not through um, kind of chef's table style stuff. It's through essentially a street food, yeah, a food that was brought to Japan by Chinese immigrants and um, sold initially, you know, kind of in the black market um, on uh, uh, by street vendors. And um, nonetheless, though, it's this, you know, it's this deeply as the film immediately tries to impress upon you with one of the opening scenes. It's this deeply uh, complex uh, dish that um, it takes a lot of craftsmanship, takes a lot of care and time, not only to create, but to also to appreciate. I think, you know, Americans are getting better at, at sort of ramen appreciation as yeah. as ramen shops proliferate across the United States over the last like 10 years, so maybe a little longer, but... Um, okay, let's let's just start with ramen. I think. I mean, we got to get into the aesthetic life and we will. Uh, but I mean, here um, we were uh, watching the movie a few nights ago and um, the movie kind of calls it shot in this regard. So uh, <laughs> the movie opens with uh, a, a guy that we learn to learn as a gangster. I wasn't actually sure he was a gangster initially, but I, I, anyway, I was reading and he was like, yeah, he's a gangster. He's in a movie theater. and he Yeah, he's a Yakuza. Right, right. And he asks the audience, direct address, what are you eating? Like, he's like, oh, you're watching a movie too. What are you eating? And the first thing I thought was, okay, that's interesting. Like, yeah, we do like to eat when we watch movies. It's kind of this, you know, these things naturally pair together. Um, typically, we're not eating a multi-course meal like he is, but we are, you know, snacking. Um, but then the movie calls it shot because uh, then we cut immediately to the movie that the this guy is watching, the the movie Tampo Po. And then in that scene, this is the, this is the part I was, I was getting to. So the two truck drivers who are sort of our two of three leads, uh, Gun and Goro, are driving and Gun is reading a book that's like a story, I guess, about this guy trying to, he's like appreciating ramen with like a ramen master or something. So then we cut to that story as it's playing out and he's there in the story. He sort of imagines himself in the story. So we're already like three narrative layers deep, which is fun. But mm -hmm. then they come back to the truck drivers and they're like, man, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> this is making me hungry. Yeah. Let's go get some ramen. And that's where the movie calls it shot because I was like, we're watching this movie and I'm like, I'm going to resist the need to go get ramen and I couldn't resist. By the end of the movie, yeah. we were like, tomorrow we are going to get ramen. And we did. So I I, it's just, it, totally. I mentioned this to me, Nick, and I think you, yeah. the same thing happened to you. Oh, yeah. I have to eat ramen. I mean, I eat ramen fairly often and I, I cook, cook a lot of Japanese food. But uh, yeah, I always have to eat ramen after watching this movie. You can't not. I mean, it's <laughs> so, you know, I feel like there is this kind of, I mean, I, there are some great food films, but I feel like food itself kind of it presents this challenge to a filmmaker because it's so food itself is so sensual and complex and it's, it's so immediate in your, in your senses and the flavor and the, and the, and the look. And it's kind of like, okay, to a visual medium, if you're an artist in this visual medium, like immediate challenge, like recreate that on the screen. Like, can you do it? Right. Mm. And, um, and I feel like this film gets as close as any film ever gets so and, and I feel like we feel that in, in the way that we want ramen after watching it. Yeah, I think it's partly that the way the the way the food is photographed and everything, but it's also partly just like seeing the the extent to which the people go in the film to find to perfect their ramen recipe, and you see the like the ardor of it. You know, like you you see how difficult it was, and you sort of 
crave the complexity that is going to be the result of that hard work. And knowing that that labor, it's not like fruitless labor. It's, it's, it's adding layers of complexity to the flavor that like build upon each one and, and how they have to go through each part. Each ingredient in the dish gets a sort of separate spotlight in the movie. And I just find that it's so, uh, it's so satisfying to watch. It's, it's, it's as much a movie about food and eating the food as it is about process. And I love process movies. Those are some of my favorite movies, like, mm-hmm. you know, heist movies, totally. uh, yeah. police procedural movies. Yeah. So I think it's like combines some really fun genre things. I totally agree. And actually, um, I have a fairly, I mean, I don't know if other people have this reading of the film, but I think the film is also about film process. So I think the film is about film itself. One of the things I love about the film is that you can you can watch it just as a kind of foodie or something as as someone who wants to just like watch a great film about about ramen it's kind of like this you know this he calls it a a ramen western right it's a take on (laughs) yeah on the spaghetti western um and you can just watch it like that and just you know have a great time and like go eat a bowl of ramen afterwards and just have so much fun Uh, the film the film is very fun and very funny too but I think it's also, you know, you say he calls this shot at the beginning. I think he calls this shot at the very beginning because we're we're at the cinema in the very beginning. And I think that mm-hmm. um, Tampopo, whenever, like, I think it's it's equally about the process of filmmaking and what film can do as a medium, as it is about uh, food making and what food can do for us, to us, and, and you know, in, in terms of... Um, you know, bringing us together, helping us sort of shape our lives, our individualities, connecting us to other people, delighting other people. Uh, film can do the same things. And I think, you know, in watching this for the nth time, um, I got really into this interpretation. And I'm now thinking like, oh gosh, every time they talk about Tempopo's ramen and how, how it's improving or not, it's a Tommy kind of like tongue in cheek talking about the film. And whether it's good or not mm-hmm. at that at that moment in time. Um, so you might remember, like, uh, I took a note on this. Where is that? There's, um, you know, like like the opening line is, you're at the movies too, huh? What you eating, right? Yeah. Where it's like this informal mm-hmm. kind of like, what you doing? Um, and then at the, and then shortly after that, um, they're in Tampopo's ramen shop, and they're they're kind of looking at each other and they go, I've got a bad feeling about this, right? And so you might've thought, yeah. as the film starts, it's kind of unusual, right? You said we're we're three layers in narratively, right? There's there's the cinema scene and then there's the reading about the ramen appreciation. And then and then there's the sort of main narrative. And you might, if, you, if you're a viewer, you might just be like, what is going on? Like, and, yeah. um, and so Tommy's like, I've got a bad feeling about this. Um, and then there's other comments <laughs> like, everyone who eats ramen is an amateur um mm. like film film you know if you're if you're watching a film you're just you're eating food you're just right. kind of enjoying it um mm-hmm. and then later on you know when they're uh when they're tasting the ramen after she's uh improved a lot of different aspects of it um he says they say something like um this is okay you know but we really want customers lining up right and then they and then they each say it's starting to have some body but it isn't going down smooth it's got no punch and the flavor lacks depth and maybe breadth. And it's right after that, that the film, I think, takes uh, a deep dive into like, it, it becomes more profound, right? There's there's mm-hmm. dramatic death, there's 
high achievement. Um, and so we get the kind of final sequence of the film where um, it has that punch, it gets that depth. And so I think what, what we're doing throughout the film, and I think there's other reasons to think this, is that he's exploring um, the power of, of, of film and filmmaking um, through, through this, through this um, uh, exploration of, of how to make like a great, a great ramen dish. And I think this explains what these vignettes I think this partly explains what these vignettes are doing. Yeah, right. So it, it's a lot like taking the, you know, what is what is a ramen dish? Well, it's like a bunch of disparate ingredients. Well, yeah. What is any dish, really? It's about a disparate ingredients like thrown together by a bunch of people, right? You have a you have a sous chef and you have like the guy, the fishmonger at the market and you have the person who built the restaurant and you have the patron and you have the waiter and mm -hmm. so on and you have the chef. Um, and, and then... A film is kind of like that. It's like a bunch of ingredients. What do you? What are the ingredients of films? Well, you, they're actors, but they're also like scenes and and stories and plots and um and lighting and that kind of thing. And it's again all thrown together by a bunch of technicians. Really, at the end of the day, like just like there's you know you have the technical craft of of culinary craft of you know generally chefs are like they're kind of artists, but they're also just like artisans, right? They're like, uh, they're, they're like cobblers, right? In a way. And similar with filmmakers, they're like, you know, they're people that like most, like that most of the, the technical people on the film, like the guy pulling focus on the camera, that's just like his job. He just pulls focus on the camera. Like he, he's not like Stanley yeah. Kubrick. He's just the guy and or the guy that holds the boom. Like they're all just technici technicians. And yeah. So I like that idea. And then the movie like explores it with all these, as you were putting it, like these plots, these side plots, which are like garnishes, so to speak, I guess, on well, the, the, right? Yeah. And also the main plot, uh, the, the, the plot of the main story um, is really just the plot of collecting different people who can contribute mm -hmm. to improving the, the dish, right? So, you know, they find the sensei among the, the sort of vagabond um, connoisseurs. Um, and then they find, you know, the guy who's going to help them uh, design out the interior and, and then the guy, you know, improve the noodles and figure out the broth. And so they're just kind of collecting this motley crew. Um, by the end, they have a great, a great ramen and an absolutely beautiful ramen shop, right? It's like totally yeah. like Instagram worthy, like from 1985. <laughs> I was like, wow, I want to yeah. eat in there. Um, a dramatic improvement to what was there. And one of the things that I think is so poignant as they're walking, as they're walking out of the shop, what do you see? But a bunch of people lined up as if they're waiting to yeah. get into the movies. And it's also that just like in a movie, the crew leaves. They're exactly. just gone. They the just, they're, the they movie's all made. Leave. It's, like, it's to the audience. It's now. gone. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, they just disperse. And and that people have talked about that. It's like the weirdness of filmmaking where it's like summer camp where you get together with this group of people and you spend all your time together for a few weeks or a month or something and then it's gone and then it's over and you just yeah. move on with your life. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's really cool. It's yeah. a cool reading of the movie. And I think it, I mean, also it's just interesting to think about the process of consuming a film like consuming a dish or something like that where there could be depth and and sort of grace notes within yeah. the the dish that you can appreciate and sometimes, you know, you have to develop a palette for certain types of filmmaking and film um, that similarly no, exactly, with yeah. the, the food. And that's why I think he chose ramen as his vehicle here. Because um, I think what he's doing is, and this is what's going on in the vignettes, I think he's really playing with um, a, a, a distinction in 80s, 
in a sort of critic critical culture that is, was really prominent, the high-low distinction. There was a lot of you know, debates about um, whether that was a good distinction or, or not. These days, people don't really take the distinction that seriously. But, you know, the film kind of poses this question of how do you make a good bowl of ramen? But I think like in, in exploring that, in, in exploring that question, the film also, like I was saying, kind of poses and answers a question about itself, which is like, how do you make a good film? Mm. And in the 80s, the answer to the to the question for both is high art, right? It's like for film, it's like American auteur film or European avant-garde film. Um, and for food, it's like, you know, I don't know, like probably like French haute cuisine or nouvelle cuisine. Um, yep. And I think he asserts right away that that's not going to be the case for food or for film. And I think ramen is the perfect example for that because it's, you know, it's this, it's this widely accessible dish. It's cheap, but it's demanding. It's hard to make. It's, it's easy to appreciate on a surface level, but it's also really deep and complex um, and, and beautiful. And in some ways can be hard to appreciate on that deeper level. So it alone, you know, you might think kind of, uh, uh, calls into question this like high low, high low distinction, and then the film itself right announces right away that it's a ramen western. Um, and then I think you know throughout the film, what we get is um, this attempt to kind of explode the high low distinction in some ways by explicitly making fun of it through these uh, through these vignettes. Um, yeah. And showing that film, you know, doesn't have to be this, uh, this, you know, auteurish or haute or high art kind of thing in order to be a great aesthetic achievement. Um, it can be, it can be something that is like Tempopo, which is just a total delight. It's, it's sensual, it's beautiful, it's heartwarming. It's just a wonderful film that nonetheless, like has this kind of I think deeper exploration of you know filmic ideals, cinematic ideals. Um, yeah, through through the sort of pursuit of those ideals, ends up having a really wonderful style. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things I really liked about this thinking of it through high low is that uh, you you might have thought that there the high low dichotomy is one of conflict. So it's sort of yeah. like you're either high or you're low, and these things are opposed to one another. But the movie really seeks to find a kind of reconciliation between these two points and to say, look, there's value in high art. There's value in what it would, you know, high art understood, excuse me, I should say this more carefully. There's value in high art understood as, you know, deemed by a certain group of intelligentsia, uh, whatever, the, the kind of difficult um, traditions obscure, or whatever. You know, intellectually yeah. demanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and but then also there's value in the in the sort of what would you know be quote unquote low art, namely the stuff that's designed by amateurs or at least for amateurs to consume. And and nowhere is this clearer than in the uh, scene, the digression scene where the businessmen go to the French fancy French restaurant, and the and the all the the older businessmen are so concerned to 
present themselves as under as knowing, but they they clearly don't know anything about the food that they're eating. So they all just order yeah. the same thing. <laughs> and then yeah. the young guy shows that he has a real understanding of the food and the the wine and so on. And that is, but it's not because he's a snob and is trying to show right. off, but rather yeah. just because he does appreciate it. And you can see there's a kind of mutual appreciation and respect between him and the waiter, right? Uh, oh yeah, because he's, totally um, he's totally got taste. Like he knows what he's talking about. Like he appreciates yeah. the value in these things. Yeah. yeah, I totally, I totally agree. So I think, I think that's actually what's going, these vignettes are so complicated and I, and I just, they were kind of blowing my mind this time. And I think when you first watch the film, they might feel distracting or like they're taking away from the sub, from the, from the main plot or that they're, or that there's too many of them or something. But what I realized is that the vignettes themselves are a smorgasbord, uh, a kind of feast of, of low film genres, right? They're slapstick, interesting. they're cartoonish, yeah, they're melodrama, they're pornography, they're classical comedy, mm. right? The, the Chaplin-esque scene of the rice omelet. These are all, these are all low genres. Right. And, and the main, of course, the main yeah. narrative is also a low genre. So he's actually, I don't know if, I think every low genre is is in this film through one of these vignettes. And then not yeah. only is he using those genres to make his point, the actual content of the vignette is usually an exploration of some high-low thing, right? So it's a, it's usually a juxtaposition. Um, the vagabonds mm -hmm. who are connoisseurs, the snobby, mm -hmm. um, um, high-class women who are learning to eat spaghetti the right way, um, but who all just end up slurping it in like this, in this ugly, like visceral delight of, of, of spaghetti slurping, um, because there's a, you know, there's a, a large white guy who's just slurping the heck out of his, out of his spaghetti. <laughs> um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I was trying to think about the other, yeah. Businessman ordering lunch, um, the vagrants who are connoisseurs. Um, yeah, a lot of these explore, um, class sort of other higher, they kind of explore other hierarchies. Um, mm -hmm. The little kid who's only supposed to eat organic food. <laughs> right, who's being told what to eat. Yeah, there's a lot of people being told what they can and can't eat. Or how they, they eat it. Yeah. yeah, or how to eat it. Mm -hmm. And then they're yeah. just kind of blatantly transgressing against those norms and saying like, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to do it my way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think it's really worth thinking through the different vignettes in in this way of like, oh, he's... You know, he's kind of, I mean, he's, I think he's really doing two main things, which is, um, you know, well, he's exploring these different genres that are considered quote unquote low and then, mm. and then sort of attacking with them the, the sort of high, low distinction through comedy and, and, and slapstick and, and so on. Yes. Well, I'll give you one more example of the high, low thing there. So, uh, when, so there, there's Goro and then there's, uh, Piskin, Pisuka. Yeah. Who's the like Pistin? the ex? Yeah. And when they fight, yeah. it's like simultaneously just like I don't know a Western bar, bar brawl, but it's shot in this really beautiful oh, yeah. way where they're silhouetted, oh, in, my gosh. you know, and framed it's by one the, of the bridge. Best scenes, yeah. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, shot yeah. shot wise, I think that's one of the best scenes. Um, I mean, actually, that's a call out too to the to the Western because that's for the, sure. um in the Searchers. Yeah, that's uh -huh. like and they're the, like on the, the edge of town, which is a trope. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's over a woman, right? Yeah. Another thing. Yeah. 
Um, Laura, wait, before, because Laura, I have a feeling you're going to have to go in a second, Laura. But yeah. do you want, is there anything you want to get in on this movie before we, before you have to unfortunately Listen, I already leave. made my Guy Fieri comment, so I feel <laughs> That's pretty a good strong one. on that no, one. No, I like that. <laughs> I, I'm into the guy, the guy jokes. Oh my God. If Guy Fieri wants to come on this podcast. Well, he's a Santa Rosa guy. He is a Santa Rosa guy. Do you know that? Yeah, 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 totally. yeah. He's a Santa Rosa. Have you been to his restaurant? Oh, I have. Yeah, um, yeah. Tex wasabi. Um, Johnny. Well, yeah. Johnny Garlics and was it was a kind of staple growing up. But Tex wasabi. Yeah, right. I've been there. I've been there. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big I'm a big actually a big Guy Fieri fan. Actually, I I'm a, I'm a defender. Love that guy. Yeah, one of the Us too. one of the yeah. like big. Th- fun things of 2020 or maybe I think it was 2020 was was the like Guy Fieri like I don't know reclamation project that was happening where people were like hey wait a second all these chefs these celebrity chefs that are being accused of like I don't know being sexually harassing their uh, their um, chefs and that sort of thing and then it turns out like guys just like raising money to like help small businesses stay afloat totally Yeah. yeah Like, never, See, is he the only good celebrity chef? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. He's certainly a role uh, model. He should be a role. Yeah. Yeah. No, the Shane Torres, he, the comedian, has that great bit about him. What is it? It basically makes this point. It's like, why is everybody crapping on Guy Fieri? Right? Um, he like he pr- promotes, he gives small businesses a national platform with his with his TV show. He's out doing all this charity work. Um, and you guys are, are shitting on him because he has flames on his fridge, you know, or or like you guys are you know, upset with him because he has sunglasses on the back of his head. Like, um, <laughs> it's a really great bit. I think that's exactly it, though. I mean, to tie it back to high low, I think that what people are hating on with Guy is that he he presents as low. And so people are like, well, in order to be, uh, you know, taken seriously among people, you know, middle class to upper middle class white people, we have to be against him because he's like a lower class, yeah. pre- presenting at least as lower class and celebrating things that are we deem to be beneath us. And, the, the you know, and this movie is explicitly against that. Like, that's why I think it's so it's a good tie in, Laura, that like Guy would fit into this movie so totally, well. Totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Torres refrain is like he didn't do anything wrong, right? You're just mad at him because he looks like he got electrocuted while drinking Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> I just think my my thought on Guy Fieri's look is like that. He just like he saw you know there was a moment in the '90s with Monty Monty Bust Bostones and and uh, and Bare Naked Ladies uh-huh. and um, what's Smash that? Mouth. Smash Mouth. And he was just like, that's my look, and it just crystallized totally. for him. Yeah. And you know what? Like, why the hell not? <laughs> it's also like, I mean, I love Guy Fieri. This is also like, there's some, there's a lot of like anti-California snobbery. And I feel like people just don't understand certain aspects uh, of California. And like Guy Fieri, I mean, there's a lot of this like kind of stuck in the 90s stuff in California. I live in San Diego where mm-hmm. if you walk into a Walgreens, you're going to hear Red Hot Chili Peppers and Sublime. Like you're going to hear it. And no doubt. <laughs> and like, it just doesn't, they just haven't changed. Like it's just still there. And I think a lot of people's like style is is kind of like just in that same vibe. I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Yeah, really it is funny because I feel like David Chang sort of like lives the high, like is is able to to do that crossover, right? Because he's like a celebrity chef who like yeah. has yeah. the like 
high credentials, but also is like, I like to eat ramen dry. And like, that's my thing, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, or he's like, I'm going to make ice, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, is it him who made the yeah. ice cream out of like cereal milk? Like, oh, right. Uh, and, and, and yeah. Yeah. Or is so that somebody I, else? It, it was, uh, well, he, I think he, what did he do? Like co, co, co run milk bar. Um, yeah. Okay. And then the, the but yeah, somehow that became like yeah. that's cool, and that's can be like in New York City, and like and, you know, and fancy people can do that, but yeah. like, people don't want to love Guy Fieri because he's got spiky hair, right? Anyway, this podcast is not about Guy Fieri. No, but it's but <laughs> no, but it, it is about Guy Fieri because Guy is one of yeah. your favorite dudes, and this movie is is a kind of celebration of exactly what he stands for, and so I think it's I think it's a good connection. Um, yeah, I don't think totally. I've ever seen a movie that celebrates food in this way. So that was that was like really fun. Yeah. Um. Like yeah. I, like I said, I've seen a lot of fancy food movies. Right. Um. But but not this. Well, we we should talk about other food movies and kind of the contrast thing. Uh. Actually, it, do do you want to riff on that a little, Nick? About like just the how this movie contrasts with other food movies. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, I think it's special in that a lot of food movies use food as a vehicle for something else. Right. So. Food Mm. is a vehicle for um, talking about relationships or food is a vehicle for talking about success or food is a vehicle for talking about, you know, um, I mean, other, you know, socio, political, cultural things. Um, Whereas, of course, that's here in the film. But here, food really is a vehicle for talking about food itself. And and then Mm -hmm. as an analogy, film film as an art. And I think the sort of the aesthetic focus of that is so, to me, so fascinating and satisfying. It's not, um, you know, it's not, I don't think in this film food is, is like fungible. It's not replaceable with like, um, you know, in some of these other films, it, they could be starting a food truck, but they could also be, I don't know, starting a yoga studio or something. Like it doesn't really matter right. that food is the focus. Right. Um, and, and I think in Tampopo, um, you know, the, the focus on food is so interesting and the way in which it uses the vignettes and the main storyline to really unearth the many, many values of food, right? I think we tend Mm -hmm. to think of food a bit lazily because we're, because of our kind of food commodity culture, right? Food is like a source of nutrition or something like that. You might as, you know, if you're really busy, just drink Soylent or something. Um, but like, that's not food, right? In this film, it's like, no, food is this way more profound thing that is a source of uh, someone's entire um, like livelihood and creative being. It's a source of friendship and community. It's a source of, I think, even kind of a sense of freedom um, in the sense of like, you know, when you're really uh, enjoying a dish, especially like I think even with friends, like there's a sense of kind of like openness and freedom that can come from that. This kind of looseness and and beauty of interaction, and um, among among many other things, right? Um, it's a source of creativity and like food is the locus of so many deep human values, and I think this film captures that better than any film has and i'm not sure any film could um so yeah i mean there's one other there's one other film that 
that I love along these lines. Well, there's I'll, I'll, there's a show in a film. Um, okay, let's hear it. Yeah, the the show is actually another Japanese show. Have you heard of Midnight Diner? No. Mm-mm. It's on Netflix. I think all I don't I think there's five seasons, and I don't know if every season is on Netflix, but a good number of seasons are on on Netflix. And it's about a diner open from midnight to 7 a.m. And there's only a couple of things on the menu, but the uh, the owner of the diner, whose name is McMaster in, in the show, will will cook you anything as long as he has the ingredients for it. Um, or <laughs> or if you bring him the ingredients, he'll make it. So as long as he it's not too hmm. fussy or something. Because like it's a diner, you know, it's like a diner, diner, like Japanese diner food. And each episode is, you know, 30 minutes or so. And it's focused on, usually focused on a customer, like a customer comes in and has, there's some drama in their life. And the show is about kind of that drama, but there's always a dish involved. There's always some dish, whether it's some tempura dish or some omelet dish or some, um, you know, pickled plums or something like that. There's always something um, that's, there's a food that's always the focus of, of the episode. And, um, and it's just beautiful. Every, it's like a bunch of perfect little episodes about food and life and community and in kind of the Tokyo underground, right? Cause it's, it's open from midnight to seven. So who comes in like, uh, you know, uh, Yakuza elders and prostitutes and, um, you know, people who've, uh, worked all night in a casino or something. Um, um, wow, mm-hmm. and these people, you know, they all they tend to all like get along and stuff. A lot, lot of recurring characters, and um, it's it's yeah, it's really it's a really great sucha. I highly recommend it. And then the sh- the movie that I think I think would come up t- to a lot of people when they think about good food movies is Babbitt's um, Babbitt's Feast. Uh, have you heard Have you heard mm-hmm. of that one? We haven't seen Babbitt. We have not seen yeah. it. I definitely know of it. But yeah. So yeah, this this uh, it's a Gabriel Alex film from 1987, I believe, uh, Danish film, and it's uh, it actually won the Oscar, I think, for best best foreign film. Um, mm. And it uh, it's about these um, this small community um, of, of very devout Protestants who are very abs. Um, Abstemious, abstemious. What's the word? <laughs> Can't remember. I don't know. <laughs> um, abstemious seems right, abstem- but yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, knows. they, uh, you know, they don't. They're, they're very good Protestants. They don't like indulge in pleasures. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so they eat a lot of bland food, and they eat the same thing all the time. Um, these two sisters uh, grow up, and um, they're kind of leaders of the community because they're the daughters of the of the main uh, pastor. Um, and they they ne- they never marry because all of the suitors are sort of like unacceptable to uh, to to their father. He passes away, and then they start to kind of lead the community. Um, and then some years down the line, this French woman shows up. She's escaping political violence in France, and she she's asking for a job. And um, the only thing available really is to cook for mainly for the sisters, but also kind of sometimes for the community. Um, and Babette is the, is the French woman, and Babette gets lucky, and uh, not well. Yeah. She she wins the lottery, and then um, decides to cook a big feast for this uh, um, uh, this very like not indulgent community, 
um, and uh, she spends all the money on the feast, and um, and the feast is like one of the great um, moments I think in cinematic history, where where like food is presented in this in this amazing way, and the power of the power of a great meal is really um, is really highlighted. Yeah, I mean those both. Those I haven't seen either. Those both sound great. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the, the the other one that as you were talking about Babbitt's feats that r- reminded me of was Big Night. Big but although Night. Big Night is kind of also about mm. uh, family and immigration and mm. uh, you know assimilation and these all these other like cultural things. Um, whereas, but I like what you said about Tampopo being this movie that is f- fundamentally about food. First mm-hmm. and foremost, and 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 everything is suffused through that. And I just think that um, you know, here's a here's another reading of the movie that I think is like it's I think it's present and it it just kind of adds another layer, I guess, to the you know the genre blending that's happening here. But yeah. you know, the movie is in a way a sports movie. Like mm-hmm. you know, she yeah. uh, Tampopo is this person who has this goal of having a re- having a ramen restaurant. You're not kind of like not sure why she has the goal. She just does have this goal. She inherited it and she kind of doesn't know what else to do with her life. And she is, is accruing these people who become like her trainers and hype men in her corner. Yeah. And, you know, they train her up and, 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 you know, she, and then she overcomes the big obstacle kind of at the end. And it's this, it's a little bit like, you know, training for the big fight and then she she wins. Except the fight is kind of all, it's it's mostly an internal thing. She just wants to perfect the ramen like for herself. Mm-hmm. She doesn't, it's not necessarily about getting money or whatever. It's, it just becomes the, she's intrinsically interested in that. Um, and I was I agree, also thinking yeah. though, I don't know how to connect. Yeah, I don't know how to connect these two thoughts, but it does feel like, because if it's a sports movie, it's like an underdog movie. But the other thing I was thinking was like the the Tampopo means dandelion. So then I was thinking like like what are dandelions? Okay, well they're weeds, right? Yeah. Like they're right there. They're the sort of things that like we, we wage a, war on yeah. in our yard. Well, we would normally basis. I think people overlook <laughs> dandelions, right? They like they're like oh <laughs> dandelions, like those are gross. We don't want them. But but of course weeds have certain virtues, right? Well, so, you can drink dandelion tea. They're sure. Animals. They but here's the thing: dandelions they they aren't like that ugly. I mean, they're bright yellow. They're <laughs> pr- they're they have a kind of workman like prettiness to them, a lot exactly. like Tampopo, right? You know, she's yeah. described as kind of mousy, mousy, but, but you know, she's, still cute. she doesn't need the all the makeup, right? Uh, but then also. <laughs> They what are weeds, but like persistent, mm-hmm. right? They're uh-huh. these things that are freaking hard to kill. Yeah, no, I have a yeah. lot of respect for those weeds. They're resilient that for I'm sure. that I'm eye- eyeballing every day in my yeah. yard. <laughs> and it, anyway, it, and if that is like you know, if if Tampopo herself has a virtue, it has to be resilience mm-hmm. because she is told yeah. she fails again and again and again in this movie and never gives up. Yeah, and she kind of she she persists through to the end and. And you know, you can mother. think of it like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's doing a lot. And like, you know, I think what what is just to tie back into the high and low thing, it's a little bit like, okay, you people are so fancy. You want your sunflowers and you want whatever. Can, can you name me some flowers, Laura? Peonies. Peonies. There and you, you want roses. And <laughs> you're not looking at the weed, which is just growing right there. And it's fighting, you know, against all the odds because you're trying to kill it. 
and it's still there. It's the survivor. And it's like the like when you or fancy person are trying to find the fancy, you know, haute cuisine mm -hmm. and right. you're overlooking the 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 sub shop that was promoted by Guy Fieri that's like legit good. Yeah. I should just let those dandelions take over. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there was a ramen shop on every corner, I, I wouldn't complain. Mm. Oh my gosh. Let, <laughs> give me, yeah, give me more ramen. Give yeah. me more ramen in my life. I'm actually, I mean, when we were eating the ramen, I was telling my son, I was like, you are so blessed to grow up in this time. Oh, yeah. We have like all the like, you know, facsimiles of, but decent facsimiles of many of the world's great cuisines like at our fingertips and like we don't live really in the kind of the burbsy part of boston and like we got a ramen shop like you know 10 minutes away that's like incredible yeah no i yeah. love i love the dandelion reading though i i totally agree with that i, I had the same I had, a, I had a similar thought i didn't have the your cool thought about um the sort of working class character of the, of the dandelion um but i definitely <laughs> thought of it as uh, in terms of the high low, which is like, it's the ramen of flowers, right? It's, it's like this uh, mm. sort of like, in some ways, easily accessible, but when you, and you tend to ignore it, but like, if you look at it, it's like actually really beautiful. It's super bright yellow. You know, it has those like beautiful mm -hmm. puffy things that you can blow and like spread out throughout the world. Um, yeah. And I feel like mm -hmm. it's, it's a really lovely um, metaphor for the, for the film. Yeah. Yeah, and as you were saying earlier, Nick, it, it, the movie is trying to celebrate, in a way, the the overlooked, right? We're always spending time with people who are homeless or who are mm -hmm. struggling, right? Yep. Or who are... In the uh, service industry. In the service industry, exactly, right? Mm -hmm. Or the, the it's the youngest businessman at the table who we're celebrating, exactly. not the older the neophyte, one. The youngest businessman. Yeah. And even the Yakuza is a young Yakuza. Mm -hmm. He's a, you know, he's, it's symbolized by his light, light dress. The older Yakuza tend to wear like a interesting, more sort of like impressive dark colors. Um, and the young Yakuza, especially in the 80s, were like flashier um, white suits and stuff like that. Interesting. But also the, um, the fact that Tempo was a woman, um, yes. which is not commented on much in the film, but it, there's one point where someone does say like, I didn't think a woman could make ramen like this. Um, and, you know, yeah, that's like incredibly offensive. And, but I think so for the eighties, like chosen, you know, like it's important that, that, uh, Itami chose a woman to play this role. Um, I think and it plays, you know, it plays well into your underdog reading. I love too, that she's surrounded by men and there's maybe Goro has a romantic interest in her, but it's, but it's not as important as the ramen. Nothing is as important to, as the ramen in this right. story. And all yeah. of the men around her that she collects are just there for the same dream that she has, which is like the perfect, not just the perfect ramen, but the perfect ramen shop, the atmosphere mm. of it, the look of it, right? They want to create about create that experience and and then they all go their separate ways afterwards uh and you know there's no there's a, there's that. like one moment where gun says you may are you in love with her and it's in the makeover moment where girl was kind of like put, doesn't want her to get gussied up because he thinks she's just fine the way she is that's really the only you know that only point and then there's the fight between Goro and what's Pasukan, the, I don't know. but but they just, they fight and they say, well, that's that. All right, let's go help her out. You know, yeah, like yeah. they just sort of walk yeah. and beat up into her shop and say like, no, 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 we're going to do the redo the interiors now. And like, that's it. Like, I love that. Yeah, and here's another piece of advice. Stay away from kids because their hair is filled with mad lights. There's no such thing as too much Purell. This 
so you've written a book on being awesome and yeah and also how not to be how not to suck which is a wonderful title and uh, i was wondering if Vic, you could tell us a little bit about you know what your theory of awesomeness is and sort of how it applies to the movie like how is this movie or the characters in the movie awesome i like that question um i think you know i, I think it actually is a pretty awesome film um so awesomeness in in this book that i wrote um is um, it's a it's it's a value that um, is a kind of social value, and it, it it's a relational value. So, awesomeness occurs when um, there's two individuals, and they're kind of in 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 a relationship where they're valuing one another as the individual each other is. Mm. Awesome, awesome people are good at creating those relationships. So mm. to give you an example, the ex an example I use a lot in the book, um, just to just to kind of have a, a go-to vivid example, is ordering a coffee at your at your you know your neighborhood coffee shop. So normally when you order a coffee, you walk in and you're just immediately playing the role of basically coffee shop customer. And there's a pretty generic script that you'll enact when you're when you're in that role. And on my end as the barista, um, of course, I'm I'm playing my role. I'm I'm you know I'm I'm in a job, so I'm sort of in some sense required to play a certain role of barista. And you know we all know how that script's going to go, right? You're going to say something like, hey, "I'd like a large coffee," and I'm going to say, "Sure, that'll be two dollars." And I'll say, "Here you go." And so here you go. Here's a coffee. Have a nice day. You have a nice day too. Blah blah blah. It's pretty common the way that that the way that that um, that script plays out. And as a result, though, I don't necessarily get a sense of your individuality, mm. and you very likely don't get a sense of mine. I seem to you just like a barista. I might have a nose ring or a tattoo or you know a cool apron on or something, but um. But none of that's very indicative of who I am as an individual. And likewise with you, um, I might think, you know, oh, another professor, geez, probably, you know, probably wants a triple espresso. Um, you know, I might, whatever, you know, I can't get much from your appearance. Um, and so as a result, it's hard for us to interact as individuals um, and especially to, to create this awesomeness that exists between, that can exist between individuals. So, but in that situation, you can try to present your individuality in some form or other, say through your sense of humor. You might like try to crack a little joke. Um, hard to do in that context because a lot of people try to crack jokes, but they end up cracking kind of, you know, generic jokes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what can I get for you today? How about a million dollars? Right? Like, <laughs> not, not very good, right? Um, but, so, but so suppose you do break out of this generic role and express yourself, your individuality, say your sense of humor, um, or maybe like your, your sense of generosity or your perceptiveness or something. You, you, you comment on something or you, or you crack a joke. Now you've just broken out of the role and expressed yourself. That gives the, that gives the barista an opportunity to break out of their role mm -hmm. and express their self. They might laugh at your joke or, you know, say something sort of cutting and, you know, something acerbic and witty in response to your joke, or, you know, they have a bunch of options in 
um, sort of breaking out of their role and expressing something about themselves, their sense of humor or their wittiness or their perceptiveness. And so, um, so if you're if you're really good at breaking out of these roles, you can be really good at um, creating what I call these these social openings, which are these these opportunities for other people to take up the opening and to express their individuality. And when it works, when it's good, then awesomeness is the result. Like I see. You have these two individuals who are like seeing each other as individuals and not just as employees or as customers or as, you know, whatever generic social role or norms we're, we're sort of bound by in that moment. And we're bound by these norms all the time, right? Yeah. No matter what you do. Yes. Yeah. So um, being good at creating social openings is is being good at creating these opportunities for awesomeness to exist between uh, between individuals as such. So Nick, can I ask you something about the, so I like this, I like this idea. I think it's a really cool idea. And I wanted to just ask a follow-up before we actually move to Tampo Po, which is, so yeah. um, for you, is individuality, like what do you think of as individuality? So I can see a couple things here. Yeah. One is like individuality is something that's, somehow internal to me that I could be alienated from. So I could not know my own individuality and, and I could not know what it would be to express, or it, it could be something that's luminous to me. So it could be done, say by, it could be performative. So like by performing, I just like create or exhibit my own individuality, even if like that Absolutely. wasn't there before I sort of did the performance. So it's not an expression of something internal the performance mm. is the individuality. I wasn't sure how you were thinking of individuality. I love, I love both of those thoughts. I think they're both true of individuality. Um, it's something we can be alienated from. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that can be luminous to us in the way that you explained really nicely, I think. Um, but so the way I think about it is that um, it's the result of our exercising what I call our discretionary valuing capacities. So we have all these sort of valuing capacities, but some of them are are kind of compulsory. We there are things we just kind of have to value. Um, mm. You know, like that love is a good. I mean, that's something that you don't really get to exercise choice over. Like, like you have to value it. Um, other human beings, right? Um, and I think a lot of the a lot of the domain of morality is the domain of thinking about compulsory valuing um, pr practices. Um, but the realm of the aesthetic is the realm of the discretionary mm. valuing. Um, Maybe they're not coincident, but I think I think a big chunk of our discretionary valuing um, is aesthetic, and our individuality in general is the result of our exercise of discretionary valuing. So um, you know, you you get to choose whether, like, you know, okay, maybe maybe Norwegian black metal is good in some sense, but like, it's up to you whether you engage in sort of a discretionary yep. valuing of, of Norwegian black metal yep. or sleek motorcycles or leather jackets or ramen or you know you know, name your favorite things. Like those are all the exercise of choice in, in valuing. And so um, I think that that's what our individuality is. It can be realized performatively, luminously. It can also be uh, alienated, something you're, you're alienated from. Maybe you're just stuck in all of these social roles and you never get the opportunity to exercise discretionary value. You're always told what to value. Uh, the politics tell you what to value. The social norms, the family values, they tell you what to value. So it might be that you're quite oppressed in this sense, yep. um, aesthetically oppressed. And um, and yeah, so uh, so that's how I think about it. Nick, can I ask a follow-up on that? So could you be 
Because it seems like then there's also space for the performative part to come apart from the genuine things you discretionarily value. So for instance, I could perform mm. a type of individuality that isn't actually reflective of my core values. That was kind of the thing I was getting at. So I was like, what would yeah. that be? Because it would be a kind of deceptive individuality in some sense, or it would be a kind of like infelicitous yeah. individuality. So like this would be like someone who's, yeah. you might describe them as like a poser, right? Someone who's like trying to be an individual, but like it's not really reflective of something genuine to them. That's right. Then, no, good. Yeah. So in the book, um, I'll plug my book here. Yeah. There's a taxonomy. Um, and one of the nodes of the taxonomy is, is the fake ass person. Mm. And that's a general category. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, po the poser is, is, is a part of the fake ass. So is the douchebag. Uh -huh. Douchebag is a type of fake ass person. Mm. And, um, and so, uh, at least I think, I think that's, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> um, I think that's how it goes. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, so, so. Awesomeness is a relation between individuals valuing each other as such. But if one individual is presenting a false front, yeah. then that relation doesn't actually hold because the other person's valuing something that isn't really there. Yeah, good. Um, and so there, there's a lot of kind of fake awesomeness. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of kind of, because one of the players isn't, isn't doing the right mm -hmm. job. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as something that like is... Uh, just like with all, um, you know, kind of performative uh, behavior, there's a way to hijack the game, so to speak, for your own purposes to basically, and, yeah. and you might even think of like, because I know you just, I'm going to like give you opportunity to talk about suckage, but you might even think of a, mm -hmm. it as a type of suckage that's maybe slightly different than, maybe slightly different than I think what you have in mind, which is it's kind of like, maybe it's like being a dick because what it, is, what it would mm. be is it would be like purporting to be awesome to basically get someone else to like try, you know, to engage in behavior, which would be awesome if it was genuine, but it's not. It'd be kind yeah. of like the ironic or sarcastic thing. And which yeah. isn't, I don't know if that is suckage, but it does sound, it it, it does suck because, it, it you know, you're like exploiting someone to create this kind of false pretense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, um, you know, I mean, look, if there's ever a genuine value um, in culture, it will be exploited yeah. by individuals and by companies, um, especially yeah. in a capitalist society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's totally what we see, right? Like commercials appealing to awesomeness, um, social media trying to like say that they created um, you know, genuine, genuine connection. Um, and yeah. And, and the other, there's another um, sort of pers persona in, in the taxonomy called this, the selfie facer, which is uh, again, a general category for people like the ironist or the clown, the person who's always presenting, seem to seem to be presenting a, um, uh, they seem to be presenting some kind of individuality but um, either, you know, you can't quite tell what's going on. Either it seems like maybe they're doing it with an ulterior motive or um, they're doing it in such a way that you can never really pin down who they are, mm -hmm. right? I think that's really true of the ironist. They're always deflecting yeah. or uh, doing something quirky, but then, um, but then sort of disavowing it. Um, and so then, you know, while those people can be sort of fun in some sense, like say, I don't know, at a party or something. Um, it's hard to get awesomeness going with them because like you can never quite tell with with the ironist or selfie facer like who you're appreciating or who you're 
right who you're sort of being awesome with right, right? Mm-hmm. there's the, the, the clear picture never quite emerges what i also mm-hmm. like is that there's this kind of iterative component to it because you might wonder yeah. whether like you could get two ironists together and they could vibe uh-huh. kind of with each other and create awesomeness by like trying to out ironize one another they don't both know what they're doing but they both like are are kind of working off of in within that framework and so i think this ha- this is a kind of re- no but this totally. is a, this is a feature of a, the aesthetic domain where you get this kind of like anytime yeah. you say de- try to define art it's easy to be like oh well here's a counterexample because i'm just going to take your definition and my art is whatever is not in your definition there's this way mm. of like reflexively right. applying the thing to create a kind of recursive thing which um I'm not sure if that's the right way of thinking about it, but yeah. Th- so I do, and right, you'd be open to that, right? The yeah. kind of two connoisseurs of irony <laughs> creating awesomeness yeah. together. Exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the, the movie, the comedy. Have you seen the movie, the comedy, Nick? Oh no, I don't think I have. It's a um, Rick Alverson movie, but like it's really it's an intense an intense movie. But it's uh, it's basically like the Tim and Eric to the those two guys. And um and I Tim, love those guys. Yeah, and they're just and they are just playing out this kind of like each one trying to out ironize the other, so to speak. And they're like super rich dudes in in Manhattan or Brooklyn or something. Uh it's a really difficult movie oh, to watch, watch but like I really enjoyed it. But and I told Laura about it and she was like, I never want to see that movie. Yeah, hard pass. But <laughs> I'm happy for you. Oh, it's Tim Heidecker. I just looked it up. Yeah, it's I Tim see, and yeah. Eric. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, and Eric. Cool, Warheim. cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that sort of that, that recursive thing that you're getting onto is is really important to aesthetic engagement. And I actually make it sort of my, my model of aesthetic discourse actually tries to make good on that, mm. on that. Because I think aesthetic discourse is the same, has the same structure. So with awesomeness, you can think of a social opening as, as an invitation. Um, and usually it's an invitation to appreciate someone's individuality, which is, you know, quasi-aesthetic, right? Like you're you're appreciating some particular feature, some particular valuable feature of a person, their sense of humor, their perceptiveness, or something like that, um, which is not unlike appreciating sort of the beauty of of, of a painting yes. or, or a flower, right? You're, yeah. you're noticing how vivid that yellow is or how subtle that brushstroke is, um, or even of a film, right? You're noticing, oh, wow, there's actually this play on high-low culture that is like quite infused throughout the film, and I just like never saw that before. Um, it's like it, the film's individuality is like breaking out, right? It's like, it's showing you itself. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of aesthetic life um, has that has that feature. Let's let's actually talk, shift back to the film real quick now. So do you, were there any points in the movie that you would say are helpful or interesting illustrations of your notion of awesomeness? That's a good question. I, um... I mean, in in a way, you know, the main plot is is awesome, right? Yeah. In that sense of mm-hmm. they're trying to to help Tampopo um, through their own sort of expressions of individuality, right? Their own expertise in uh, noodle making or broth making or interior design, um, in a way that helps her bring out her individuality, helps her cultivate. Um, herself in that respect, um, i.e., helping her find her discretionary valuing capacities and help helping her sort of focus them on on her art um, to find you know how she wants to make broth, how she wants to to serve her noodles, what ingredients she wants to put in her ramen. 
so I think in general, like awesomeness is very much at the heart of, of the main, of the main plot. There's also just a lot of awesomeness in the vignettes where, right. for example, when, when the sensei is leaving the connoisseur vagabonds and they, and they all decide to spontaneously sing yeah. uh, to the sensei. It's a beautiful moment. Yeah. Um, that's totally awesome. Like that's, that's awesomeness right there. Um, I like, I mean, the, the, we've talked about this part before, but I like that, that, that part where the, um, where the youngest businessman, he seems to really vibe with the Mater D, where they, he seems to be yeah. like, he's asking him these questions, revealing that he knows about it. And the Mater D is responding with like, oh, interesting. Well, I, maybe I'd recommend this. And and there, there, there clearly is a kind of, it's not necessarily that the Mater D, I mean, I guess in some sense, he does exhibit its own individuality. I think he makes recommendations back to the, to the guy. And yeah. the, guy, the guy is definitely showing his own individuality because he's showing what he really wants. And that's juxtaposed with the other guys who are all too timid to do that because they, they're scared well, of saying I mean, the wrong thing. It's like the thing. definition of suckiness, right? Yeah. Because yeah, mm-hmm. it's, 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 I mean, it's a classical business, Japanese business hierarchy where basically what the leader says goes. So you don't question it ever. Right? Yeah. And, they, and he's sort of humorously imposing this on like a, an, like a lunch order. Um, <laughs> and it's totally sucky, right? Like, like you can't express your individuality in that, in that context. You're, you're forced to just follow the tastes of whoever is the higher up. Um, and, then, and then, of course, right, the, young, the young guy just breaks out of that um, yeah. in an awesome way, for sure. I mean, ramen itself, because it's so customizable, is individual yeah. too yeah. you know i think that scene where they go it's a great vehicle for it yeah yeah the scene where they they show her that she needs to be able to remember people's orders you know and, and the 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 right. train comes in and there's the rush that's, hour that's a great one yeah. and everybody's just like i want no men i want more men i want plain i want you know extra hard boiled egg or soft boiled eggs like everybody has a very specific order that is their own um whereas like when the woman when there's the scene of the other young ladies learning how to eat spaghetti properly she talks about how they're are certain spaghettis that take parmesan and certain ones that do not like there are these right. these cultural norms and rules around f- high food um and you know you're not to you're not to deviate and go off menu that's a faux pas but with ramen you're, it's an invitation you know um yeah but based yeah. on whatever they have you know they may not have all of the all the goodies at that ramen shop but like from there it's yours to to make your own bowl I love that point. And it's so true. Um, I think one of, I mean, one of the things I emphasize in the book is that to be an awesome person is to be good at creating these social openings. But to do that, you have to be really attentive to the ways in which individuality show up um, in, uh, shows up in, in, in other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it shows up in really a lot of different ways. And um, Tampopo's you know, she kind of demonstrates her ability to be, not just not just to remember an order, but to, you know, remember it in a kind of valuing way. She's mm-hmm. like delighted by all these differences. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And Goro's teaching her that aspect too. Um, there's so much about like not just the ramen itself, but the like the the experience around the ramen. You know, when he's telling her when to look at the customer and when to not, and he's like, you really got to like when the customer comes in, see what's going on with them. Have they been drinking? Are they upset? Do they like, are they in a place to enjoy your ramen? Like there's a, there's a human connection where he's encouraging her to see that person for more than just like a body in front of her at making an order. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, gosh, you're, you're making me realize that there's, there's so much more to it than than I, than I was thinking at first. Yeah. 
you know, another, I mean, um, aspect of it where the movie is kind of suffused with its own individuality is how the movie kind of unlike any other movie in some respect is because it's kind of a it's kind of a you know i don't i mean this in the best possible way but it, it it's disjointed in a way i mean it really um, it just throws together mashes together a bunch of different genre tropes a bunch of different side plots and all that but you do get the sense that those are all genuine ex- expressions of itami's own individuality like what he cares about why he wants to make movies why he wants to make movies about ramen like you just feel like it's coming from this genuine place of excitement and um and i don't know uh creativity it it really feels to me i actually don't know anything about his career yeah it really does feel you know some sense like it's kind of like a first film like you just i don't know if it is i have no i actually don't know anything about his filmography but it really feels like you know when you make a first movie you get together and you're like i'm gonna do every type of shot we're gonna have a split diopter shot we're gonna have a crane shot we're gonna have a super wide angle shot and because you're just like i saw all these movies and now i get to do it like i'm gonna put everything you often see that with like first movies they just put everything in and then there's like a vent you know that can often be exhausting um but it but it can also be this like sort of exuberant expression of playful yeah it's playful yeah so full of heart and playfulness i i couldn't help but i was dwelling on this watching the film again the one of the most dramatic scenes is the is the death scene of the yakuza the young yakuza gangster yeah um at the end and it ties us back to the beginning of the film when he says that when you die, you see a short film of mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. And I don't want that interrupted. And so immediately, Itami's connecting film and life in like mm. the deepest possible way, right? It's like, at your death, you will see a film. Like, that's the most important thing, like part of your death. And like, he's like, don't interrupt that. And yet, you know, so at the end, this guy dies and it's, it's like, over the top dramatic right it's like he he's it's like uh i don't even know what the right word is um but it's over the top and he's bloody and he's shot like a million times and then um his his girlfriend or wife or partner comes over and is like oh don't die don't die and then he tells this story about um hunting boar and how you know boar eats sausage in the winter yeah. or sorry <laughs> eats sausage yeah eat yams in the winter yeah. and so their stomachs are full of, of these sweet potatoes and so if you if you hunt a boar you have to immediately like take out their intestines and, and grill essentially a sweet potato sausage um and uh but what i was noticing is that um he very deliberately shoots this death scene in a playground oh wow and yeah and, and he, so hmm. he kind of like he kind of wanders his way into this into this playground and that's what and that's where he dies um and i was just thinking you know that's such a great symbol and i haven't quite worked it out but it seems like the yakuza character does represent something kind of um i don't know something sort of deficient about about the love of film or the love of life there's something sort of like dark about this character and i think that that's you know that's why he chooses to shoot this guy with with um, with pornography which i think he's thinking of as a kind of like low in a bad way or something like that i'm, I'm not sure that's what's going on but it, it's interesting that that's what that, that's what's happening and the death i think in in the playground is like is like you know there's something like it's the death of 
of play when you're when you're like this mm. that you don't see the richness of film and all the things that it can do for you it's as mm. if you think that like high culture is the only culture or something yeah. Um, no, it's really interesting. I mean, the deaths, I, I love that reading, actually, that it's a kind of death of innocence. It's a death of the kind of childlike yeah. view of the world that comes when you embrace these kind of societal expectations about what's good and bad and thus lose your own individuality. I think that's really interesting. I mean, what the death scene for me, there were a couple sort of film nods, homages in the movie. And the death scene to me felt like an homage to breathless i mean because partly as you were mm. pointing out nick that it for sure it's just so over the top and he's running and he keeps running and he keeps getting shot and turning around and it's just like that tracking shot at the end of breathless where he you know belmondo's getting shot and then he's running he's still running and it's so dramatic yeah. and absurd almost <laughs> uh and and yeah. yeah and that was and there were a couple other you know sort of homages there's like rocky and that kind of thing and, and so it sort of felt like he's playing in that space and so that's kind of what it reminded me of and then of course the also when they when they're talking right because it's like a he's on the ground and her, it's just the faces next to each other. That's very much like at the end of Breathless. So I, I thought that was, that was what it reminded me of, but I like this idea of like the death of innocence more. I mean, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. I think it's, I think that's totally, yeah, totally compatible too. And I think, I think a general rule of his vignettes is he's picking a low genre and then he's definitely riffing on, on other films. Yeah. Um, um, and you know, we have like Charlie Chaplin in, in the uh, rice omelet scene. And I don't, I, you know, if I knew more about the history of film and, and was more quick to, to recognize the presence of the history of film in in these shots, I, I'm sure we would see like a lot of, a lot of nods. Yeah. I mean, on that, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we were talking earlier about the kind of genre blending mashup sort of thing and also there's this kind of cultural mashup as you put it like the ramen was is it was actually imported from ultimately from chinese immigrants and then it became a, a japanese mm -hmm. cuisine and now you know you find it everywhere in america and you see the same thing happening yeah. with film so you see like kurosawa makes whatever uh hidden fortress which then becomes star wars which then becomes whatever right. and it's the same thing with the westerns you know you have uh kurosawa makes yeah. yohimbo and then they whatever um you know or he makes seven samurai and then you have the magnificent seven and then you have sergio leone making yeah. spaghetti westerns and which are like so you have this like suffusion where you can't kind of track where the western begins and ends and mm -hmm. it it's all like blended together with the samurai and with these italian westerns and it, it just kind of eventually it just becomes kind of boring or fruitless or not that interesting to like try to trace the genesis and to just instead be like yeah these are all just like the culture has become this like blend and it's so much more interesting as this blend as a genuine melting pot than as like a, a bunch of straight lines that kind of causally impinge on one another. Um, and I feel like totally. that's kind of what happens to the movie. Like at the end of the movie, you're kind of, as yeah. you were saying at the beginning, like you're like, I don't really remember the order of the like side plots. Like oh, it just kind yeah. of, you just kind of, it just like kind of becomes all mixed together. And, and I think we've only seen it once. So I, but I suspect that upon repeat viewings, it will just feel more like this one monolithic thing as opposed to the way I watched it first. I was like, Oh, side tangent. What's that going? What's going on there? Is this important? Because you don't know whether it's going to be important or not. But I think after, after you've seen it, you're like, oh, I know that that isn't going to amount to anything. It's just a garnish. So I can just enjoy it for its own sake. 
Um, and I and then it just all becomes one piece, maybe, uh, which I think is kind of yeah. Cool. It's like a meal, right? Yeah. You know? It's funny because I love food so much, and I've had these you know a lot of epic meals um, all over the world, and like, and it's like, what what did I actually eat? At that? It was like the best meal I've ever mm. had, but what was it? <laughs> and I go, oh yeah, there's this plate, and there's that. Plate. I mean, maybe I remember. Oh yeah, I had one one thing, one thing first, and the dessert last, or whatever. But like the rest of it's kind of a uh, this mashup, this blur of mm. of just like you know, deliciousness. It's really great. I mean, and I'm glad you suggested it, Nick, because you are much more of a foodie than us. And you can talk about food in ways that we can't. I feel like Laura and I, we're kind of like on more on the side, I think of like, food is for nourishment. And that's partly I think, because mm -hmm. we have a, a, a small kid and, and that makes it harder to yeah. I mean, as you know, I mean, I'm sure your cooking has <laughs> yeah. been set back a little bit by just having to care for a little guy. Yeah. No salt. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. That's right. That's we right. gave up on that pretty quick. We yeah, we just fed our kid ramen. So <laughs> Yeah. He also loves uh, like pretzels well, he's older. in hummus. Yeah, it's true. He's older. Yeah. <laughs> he's older. Yeah. But um on that note, Nick, why don't we wrap up and, and I wanna ask you like what's next and and you know, you're writing this new book mm -hmm. and uh yeah. you know what's uh what's coming up next for you? Yeah, I'm working on the book. Um that'll be finished pretty soon definitely before the end of the year i'm on sabbaticals so that's cool nice. uh, in the next academic year and i'm gonna be working on that initially i'm writing a book with um ct nguyen who is a very cool philosopher um also does aesthetics and other things epistemology i don't know he's becoming kind of like a philosopher of the internet too yeah in very cool ways and um what's that book on? he's written a great book uh it's called this is aesthetics so it's it's our grand introduction to uh, philosophical aesthetics and cool. we're cool. taking a very new approach um, to it, a kind of more value oriented approach um, than what you might think of as maybe the uh, more popular approach, more common approach in the last like 50 years, which is kind of more object and art centered approach. I see. Um, uh, you might think of the difference between like the philosophies of the arts um, and, and our approach, which is more kind of like, um, the philosophy of aesthetic value and aesthetic life and why it matters. Mm. Um, and so we're working on that. And then, um, yeah, I'm hoping to get, I'm getting together uh, a collection of essays, um, about 12, 13 of my essays um, that have been published over the last decade or so about, about this topic, about aesthetic life and why it matters. Um, so I'm sort of critiquing the, what I call the Kantian legacy, which is a, a way of thinking about aesthetic life and why it matters that derives from from Kant and, and his and his many followers, and uh, my my essay sort of systematically critique that picture, and then um, also sort of systematically but very piecemeal um, build up an alternative cool. picture, and so uh, one of the one of the features of my essays is that they are intended to be read together, and I'm hoping to um, pitch that collection um, really soon. Uh, to OUP. That sounds great. That works out. Yeah. And uh, other than that, just hanging with Wolf and with my with my wife, Brett, and I'm trying to enjoy enjoy things in San Diego as yeah. the pandemic recedes. Yeah, that sounds great. And Nick, where can people find you on social media? Oh, so um, on Twitter, it's just at Nick Riggle. Um, and I'm on Facebook kind of here and there. Uh, Instagram, at Nick Riggle. Very, um, very straightforward there. 
Uh, but yeah, I don't know. yeah, those are my handles. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Uh, we are at Cal's Pod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at calspod.wordpress.com. Next week, we are talking Ali with the internet's foremost Michael Mann appreciator, Blake Howard. So look forward to that. And Nick, thank you so much for being here. This was a blast. Yeah, my pleasure. It was so fun. I, I actually want to go watch Tampopo again. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I, I gotta actually ramen. order another batch of ramen. Actually, I think that's what I'm gonna do right <laughs> now. All right, cheers. Yeah, <laughs> cheers. I'm Eddie and we're rolling out, looking for America's greatest diners, drive-ins, and dives. This trip, wow, we're digging into all kinds of barbecue goodness. Oh, what a great idea! 